listening to sermon audio from Redeemer Church, where we are disciples of Jesus in life together, making disciples. Check out our other media, or to find out more information about our church, visit RedeemerSGF.com. So for those of you who don't know me, my name is Greg. I'm the lead pastor here, and uh, we are working through the book of John. So I would invite you guys to go ahead and open your Bibles to John chapter 2. John chapter 2, we will be in verses 13 through 25. John 2, 13 through 25 in this series being life in his name. And so we are holding John the Apostle uh, to his thesis of chapter 1 that or the thesis that we see in chapter 20, that ultimately the goal and the aim of him writing this gospel is so that we would know Jesus and believe in his name, that we would believe that he is the son of God, that he died for the sins of the world, that by believing in him, that we would have life forevermore. And so we are kind of holding John to that thesis and making sure that every page we turn in this gospel of his is true, is right. So today, we get into this very unique story we are familiar with, or at least have heard before, about Jesus overturning the tables in the temple, right? We often hear about it, and and quickly what happens is it gets quickly associated to the church building and, you know, how we are to respond as far as this being the house of God and how we are to revere it. And I just want to let you know, that is not the meaning behind this passage today, And in fact, there's a whole lot more uh, to this than I had even realized, and we'll dive into that in just a moment. But really, what we're going to be seeing today is a zeal for worship in God's house and understanding what is God's house and what is that zeal and why does Jesus have it and why is it something that we are to have as well. Think about a home, your home. Or maybe you struggle, you don't have a home, you desire to have a home. It's something that we all value deeply, right? We love our homes. We want our own homes. We want our own land. We want our own freedom to use our home how we want for our intended good. That's generally what we think. And if it's not something that we do have in this room, it's something that we long to have, right? We want that place That is the place we can call our own. It's our refuge. It's our place of rest, of peace, of comfort, of relating to those we love dearly. And so that's what a home is. It is also a place where we labor to be inviting to our families, to friends, a place where we can gather, a place where we can come together and talk, where we can eat together, where we can laugh together, we can enjoy one another. That's the ideal home. And I understand not every home is that way, but we're talking about the ideal home. And so when we have guests come to our home, we want them to also have the same feel and the same experience of how we experience our home with that same love, with that same warmness to it. And so as Christians, hospitality is a big deal. Hospitality is an expression of the gospel. Hospitality is welcoming in the stranger. And so we want people to come in. We want people to enjoy themselves. We want people, when they come into our homes, to stay a while, 
to enjoy a hot cup of coffee and a good conversation, a meal for which they can be satisfied. We want people to laugh with, to cry with, to pray with, to encourage one another in the Scriptures. This is what we want. And being made in the image and the likeness of God, this sort of hospitality and desire for a home is something that we didn't make up on our own, but it is something that is modeled first by our God. He's the one, He's the impetus of hospitality who has invited us into His house. And so the house of God in the Bible, in particular today, is what we see as the temple. We first saw it as the tabernacle, and I would even say before that, we saw it as the garden. It's the dwelling place of God. And it is a ultimately a replica of a home that we were all created to enjoy forever. Not just this religious sanctuary that you go to and do some sort of sacrifice and praying and worshiping at, but really a home that is inviting. In God's house, it is a house of worship. It not only has the sheer presence of God's glory, we see that with the tabernacle, I believe Exodus 40. We see that in the temple in Solomon's day when the glory of God consumes the temple, right? And all the people are in awe and they worship Him. His glory dwells. But not only do you have that, but you also, if you were to study the fixtures and study everything that's in the temple, you see that it has a lot of furniture and utensils that you would seem to find in a house. You have a lamp that never seems to burn out, right? It's constantly lit, always signifying the presence of God. You have the bread that is constantly there, freshly baked every week. It won't go stale because the priests are constantly replacing it. You see a basin that is always replenished with clean, good water, a table that is always set an altar that is always ready to atone for sin and ultimately bring peace upon those who enter into the presence of God's house. And so of all these things that are sacred and holy about the house of the Lord, it was also a place of invitation. God didn't establish his dwelling among his people or the tabernacle or the temple to intimidate the people, to intimidate the nations, to push them away, to scare them, But it was an invitation for prayer, prayer for the nations. And so essentially what we're seeing here, one of the pictures of God's house, is that this is an invitation where God is calling his sons and daughters back into his presence. Being with him. Being with him where the lights never go out. The bread never runs out. The water's always there. The the blood of sacrifice and atonement is always being applied. So the house of the Lord is good, it's right, it's holy, it's warm, and it's a glorious place where the children of God get to come and to be and meet in the presence of their God. It's in this house that God pours out His forgiveness. God pours out His peace and love upon His people in His presence. Instead of completely consuming them and doing away with them in His house, they are family. And so this house of the Lord is an invitation. And it's an invitation even to the nations, to the Gentiles, to come in and pray, to turn away from their idols, turn away from false gods, 
to turn away from their evil practices and to turn to the Lord and enter into his presence and be a child of his forever. So this purpose of the house is what Jesus was so jealous about in today's story. The reason his zeal was so intense is because the people of God have forgotten the purpose of God's house. The Jews of the day seem to have lost sight of the meaning of God's house. And so instead of abandoning their God and abandoning the house, what they have done is they have changed the whole meaning of the purpose of God's house into a means that God never intended. So in the name of God, in the name of worship, they end up sinning against the God that they think that they're worshiping. And so Jesus comes consumed with zeal, comes with uh, a, a passion and a desire to restore worship to what it was intended to be. And the word zeal, because we'll hear it a lot today, in this definition, means to have a deep concern for or devotion to someone or something. To have a deep concern or devotion to someone or something. And so we'll see today Jesus' zeal for worship in God's house. Jesus' zeal for worship in God's house. And we'll see it in a few ways. In verses 13 through 17, we'll see a zeal for the house and the household of God. A zeal for the house and the household of God. In verses 18 through 22, a zeal that can only be obtained through Jesus. A zeal that can only be obtained through Jesus. And last, in verses 23 through 25, a zeal that must change hearts. A zeal for the house and the household of God. Read with me verses 13 through 17. Follow along. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned tables. And he told those who sold pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. A zeal for the house and the household of God. First, we see that Jesus is entering into a time of Passover. I do want to make one thing real, real um, one, make you aware of one thing. Gosh, I can't get my words right. The other gospel accounts of Jesus clearing out the temple happen at the end of his ministry. Here in the gospel of John, we see this at the beginning. So there's a lot of question. Is this the same event? Is John just getting backwards in his, in his chronology here? Or is there something else going on? Because there's so much un- uncertainty as to why that is, the, the common consensus, or the consensus is that there are two accounts of Jesus cleaning out the temple, cleansing the temple. One here at the beginning of his ministry, and then another towards the end of his ministry. And that is because that is the clearest biblical answer that we can give without jumping into the realm of speculation and speaking outside of the authority of Scripture. 
So here we see Jesus coming to the temple during a significant time of the year, the Passover. It's what we celebrated last week, Easter, right? And the Passover is something we recall from the book of Exodus, all the way back to Exodus chapters 12 and even unto 13. The Jews were, or God had warned Pharaoh multiple times to let the people of Israel go. And Pharaoh, in his hardened heart, refused to let the people go over and over. So this final time, God says, I am going to send a destroyer to destroy the firstborn of the land. And the only way that your firstborn is not destroyed is if you partake in the Passover. And that is where the blood of the lamb would cover and atone for uh, the sins of the people, and the destroyer would pass over those who participate in the Passover, not destroy the firstborn, but those who do not participate in the Passover, who do not have the blood of the Passover lamb, the destroyer will destroy their firstborn. And so the Israelites took the lamb, slaughtered the lamb, took the blood, covered their homes, participated in the Passover, the destroyer came and destroyed the firstborn of the land, and not just the elite, but we're talking from the slaves all the way to officials. Anybody who was not covered by this blood was going to have um, devastation in their home. And so once the destroyer came, then Israel plundered the Egyptians. And then after, as Israel is leaving, we see in Exodus 13 that even along the way, there would be sojourners or foreigners who would come along with Israel and obey the Lord, and they would be able to participate in the Passover in years to come. So really from the inception of the Passover, worship was accepted and called upon by all those who were in the hearing of God's word via Moses. So really, both Israel and Egypt were called to worship God. And only Israel responded in faith. And so Israel was worshiping God. And I think this is going to be important for the setting of today's story. Israel would plunder the Egyptians, but then they would take the gold, they would take the the fabric, they would take all these things from the Egyptians, and they would use that material after they left Egypt for the construction of the tabernacle. They would use these resources as a worship. This is the first time you begin to see, really, the word atonement in the Bible is here in the book of Exodus. You actually had an atonement tax. And so it was established early on that the people of God would take the resources that God had given them and give it back as an act of worship to God. Not to atone for their own sins and their own ways, but as an act of worship to God. And so the Passover was a big annual event ever since the time of the Exodus. And so Jews from all over, all over the known world would come into Jerusalem And they would worship during this time. And this is where you get, if you get into the book of Psalms, you heard of the Psalms of Ascent. The Psalms of Ascent are Psalms that Jews would recite as they were ascending into Jerusalem. 
Jerusalem was higher elevation. So any, from any direction that you would come into Jerusalem, you were ascending into Jerusalem. So the Jews would be reciting these psalms as worship, as they're traveling long distances into Jerusalem as a way of worshiping and preparing themselves to come to the house of God. This is what you see in the book of Acts whenever all the nations, all the Jews from all over the, the, the dispersion come in. The Holy Spirit falls and there's languages being spoken in different, uh, different tongues, right? That's the same thing where the Jews were coming in from all over the world. And so when the people would come in, this is important to understand what's going on here. Not everybody could just carry all their animals with them for worship, right? Carrying the pigeons or carrying lambs or, or, or whatever it is. So what, what would happen is, there would be shops set up in Jerusalem where people could come in, buy their animals for worship, for sacrifice, and use that as sacrifice for their worship in the temple. And the same with the currency. Kind of like you have the atonement tax in the Old Testament, you still have this tax, if you will, that you're paying in the temple, this temple tax that you're paying as an act of worship, but it needs to be received in a certain currency. People are coming from all over the world having different uh, sorts of currency. So they would come in and exchange their money for correct currency in order to give it to the temple. This was not a problem. This sort of exchange was not the issue. And this is not what Jesus is combating in this time. The problem was the location of which these things were taking place. The location. They were selling animals and exchanging money in the temple outer court area. That is not the place where commerce is to be had. So Jesus comes in and he comes into the temple and he's not frustrated that people want animals to sacrifice for worship. He's not frustrated they're wanting to give money as an act of worship. He's frustrated because this location for which they're uh, practicing this commerce is done in the very place where the Gentiles would come in and pray to God. And so this place was a sacred place. So what you have here essentially is, in lieu of prayer, you have the clanging of money. In lieu of worship, you have the bleeding of sheep. So the Gentiles, the only place that they could come to and worship in the temple was in this outer courts, and it was completely taken over by commerce. There was no opportunity for them to worship in the presence of God. And so we see all these really ungodly things in lieu of the worship that was meant for this location. And so we see then Jesus consumed with zeal for his father's house, turns these tables over, calls people out of this outer courtroom, right? Drives them out. He makes a cord of whips and he just starts cracking the whip, telling people to get out of there. And he does it because he is consumed with zeal for worship in the house of God. And this comes from Psalm 69 Verse 9. So later on, the disciples, they may not have in the moment recognized this, but later on down the road, they realized, now I understand what Jesus was doing. Now I remember Psalm 69, 9. 
for the zeal will consume him. Zeal for the house of God will consume him. And that's what we see. For zeal for your house has consumed me and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. This is a psalm of David. David in his time, he desired for the temple. He longed for the temple. He longed for the house of God. He was never able to build it. It was his son after him, Solomon, who got to build the temple and see God's glory come upon it. So David longed for it. He desired for it. His zeal for worship with the Lord was strong. And he was so strong that he ended up feeling like an outsider to his own people. That's the same thing you're seeing with Jesus. He's among his own people and now he is setting himself apart. David is among his own people and it seems like his passion, his desire for God seems to be on a completely different road than everyone else. So David, though, he has a deep love for his people. And though he has a deep love for his people, his love for God is much greater and stronger. And so those who were against the Lord are now against David. This is why he says in Psalm 69, 9, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen upon me. And so David is now feeling the weight of the enemies of God. Not only coming against God, but coming against him because he is for God. And so we see the same with Jesus. Jesus is not acting on his own. He's not acting in isolation of the Father or the Spirit. He's not doing this apart from that. He's doing this in conjunction with the truth, with the word. And now he's kind of on an island because he's going against the grain of culture and tradition. And so now he seems to be the outsider. And theologically speaking, it will be the reproach of the people that falls upon Jesus that we see in the cross. You know, Paul actually cites this verse. The Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 15 actually cites this verse as well. And this is something I'd never paid attention to before. But so John the Apostle is citing Psalm 69.9, but so does Paul in Romans 15. And he says this, Romans 15.1-7, We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak. And not to please ourselves, let each, of us, let, let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, here it is, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Jesus Christ that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. If that is not more fitting, it gives more context and clarity here. So as zealous and angry as Jesus is for the Father's worship, It's not just about Jesus getting his way. It's about Jesus considering all of God's people coming together to worship God the way that God had intended it. That's what Paul is saying. Come together as one unified voice and praise. Praise him. 
And so Jesus, looking in the temple, seeing that there's an exclusion going on, there's a segregation that's going on, he's saying, no, this is not how it must be. This is God's house, a prayer house, a house for all the nations to come and to worship Him. And so through the gospel of Jesus, Paul makes the point. We are not to create stumbling blocks for one another, like the Jews did for the Gentiles here in the temple. But we are to open the way for all those who are in Christ to truly worship God. So we need to stop being a stumbling block to one another in our worship. And that is the beauty of God's house. It is unbiased. It is unprejudiced towards those who come into the house. So as long as they are entering by repentance and faith in Jesus. This means any sinner from any nation, any tribe, any tongue, any political persuasion, if you will, can enter into the house of the Lord by faith in Christ alone. And we have to be ready to welcome all who enter the doors of Christ's home. And so as a nation, think about this. As a nation, we are so strongly divided. We are drawing, I mean, you see this on social media, you see this just in media in general, you see this if you're out on the streets, we are drawing hard lines in the sand. Hard lines in the sand. Division like we've really never seen before. We're creating walls of hostility and separation from one another. And that's ultimately the very opposite of what a home is to be. A home divided ultimately cannot stand. And so as a nation, we are, we're strongly divided. We're drawing those strong, hard lines. But Jesus comes and he does something radical. Something that draws the most divided individuals together into one home. And here's one way that this was illustrated. And I think Montgomery Boyce in his commentary on this. So I kind of steal his illustration here. There are two disciples of the 12 disciples that help illustrate this, this divide. And one that, and this may actually be something that speaks very clear into our situation in America. But we have Simon and we have Matthew. Okay, Simon was a zealot. A zealot, during that time, was really the hardcore, God and country, don't tread on me, anti-government revolutionary. They were. Big time. The zealots went down in infamy, uh, notably their story to the bitter end at the top of Masada. If you ever want to read that story, it is fascinating. Just look up the zealots and Masada and you will see some crazy stories. Simon ultimately was the anti-government disciple, (laughs) if you could have one. And then there was Matthew, a tax collector, an official for the government, Ultimately, a thief of the people's money, siding with the government and a government that openly murders innocent people, uses their power to constantly overreach and terrorize its citizens, even even putting a level of jurisdiction over the authority of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish leaders over the temple. Matthew would kind of represent that pro-government disciple, and you could not get any more opposite of disciples than these two guys, right? They come from completely different backgrounds and would not like each other outside of Jesus. 
But Jesus was neither the God and country nor the pro-government leader. Yeah, he saw good in both. We see this in Scripture. But Jesus ultimately said, render Caesar what is Caesar's and render to God what is God's. But here's what Jesus did that was so fascinating. He brings these two people into ultimately the house of the Lord together. And how does he do this? He calls both of those men to stop following their own passions, their own ethic, their own politics, and to follow him and to allow Jesus to rule their life. You tell some anti-government person, right? Hey, let me rule your life. It ain't happening, right? It ain't, it ain't going to happen. But ultimately here, and that's also an offense to those who are trusting in the authority of Rome. Like, nah, I'm not going to follow this crazy dude who's telling me to follow him. And so ultimately you see when both of those parties clash, what do they do? Let's get rid of Jesus. Let's kill him. Let's trade him for another zealot by the name of Barabbas. And so what we see here, though, is Jesus is taking two radically different people and he's bringing them together into the house of God. And he does it by having them be in Christ, putting their faith in him, allowing Jesus to rule their life. And so that is the gospel. He takes all types of sinners and turns their broken hearts into God-fearing hearts, and he redeems their worship. The story about Simon and Matthew isn't about their politics. It isn't about their personal ethics. It isn't about any of those things. Now when we talk about Simon and Matthew, we're talking about them as being disciples of Jesus. Their identity has been completely redeemed and changed. So Jesus does more than just change our identity. He brings us together. And not only brings us together, but Jesus turns us into building blocks for the house of God. Being built upon the cornerstone, the foundation, which is Christ Jesus Himself. We are the house of God. The house of the living God. Zeal for the worship Jesus of Jesus is a zeal for all of God's people to worship Jesus. So we can't just say my worship is my individual, personal, private worship of God. No. It is an all-inclusive, if you will. Our worship of God is also inclusive of us bringing in our brothers and sisters to worship God. If we think of it only as ourselves what we could find ourselves doing is being no better than the Jews who in this story, out of a desire to worship God, end up creating a stumbling block for people to worship God. So consider this room this morning. It's a very, very quiet, tired room this morning. We are all covered by the blood of the Passover lamb. His name is Jesus. And so as part of our act of worship, Ask yourself, how are we fighting for each other's worship? Why was Jesus the only one zealous for the worship in that time? Why didn't anyone else who knew the Bible agree with him and understand him? 
They didn't. They wanted a sign. They wanted to understand His authority. But how are we fighting for each other's worship? Will the Lord be pleased with how we are fighting for worship? Or would He be zealously against our efforts? Even if we thought them to be rightly motivated. In other words, are we a door of invitation to our brothers and sisters worshiping Jesus? Or are we a sinful stumbling block? You might be thinking, well, how do I have that sort of zeal and passion like Jesus? You know, I don't want to be divisive or, or turning worship into a den of robbers. Well, here's the good news. There's nothing in your own power or effort that can conjure that same zeal that Jesus has. Jesus has to, He must do the work for you on your behalf and then give you the zeal that He has for His house. And so we see in verses 18 through 22, a zeal that can only be obtained through Jesus. Follow with me in verses 18 through 22. And so the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. (laughs) What did they not say after this happened? You know what, Jesus, you're right. We shouldn't have done this. This is not the proper place to set up money changers and selling animals. You are on point. No. Show us a sign. Because obviously you have some sort of authority here that we want to know about. And God hasn't struck you down for doing this. So you must have the inside scoop in some way. You must have some authority that we don't know about. And so Jesus answers them directly, yet in a veiled sort of way. Destroy this temple. You destroy this temple and then I will raise it up again. The Jews, of course, were confused and they would have been, right? This is the temple. It has now been built a second time. And it took our forefathers decades to get the money, the resources, the time, the energy, fighting oppressive governments just to get this thing built up. And you're telling me, Jesus, that we destroy this thing and then you'll build it back up in a few days. You are outside of your mind. Outside of your mind. But Jesus' words weren't literal in the sense of the physical building the temple. The disciples picked up on that later. And not because they, they found the hidden clues and pieced it all together, but because they went back to Scripture and they realized, this is what Jesus meant. Scripture, the Word of God, made it clear what Jesus was talking about. And so His words then ties, ties into what true worship is. So when Jesus says, destroy this temple, destroy my body, this is the beginning of the work of redeeming true worship. Jesus must die. 
He must take in all sin and he must take it all with him to the grave. All the sinful and evil worship that is taking place in the temple cannot be atoned for in any other way except through Christ. He must take all of that sinfulness with him to the grave so that he can ultimately put it to death. And he will lay down his life, but it'll be at the hands of the Jews, these supposed worshipers of God, who ultimately put him to death, begging to Pilate that he would be crucified. And remember, John told us in the first chapter that this light was coming and he would come to his own and his own would not recognize him. And so this is what Jesus is saying right here. I'm going to die. You're not even recognizing who I am. You're not even recognizing what is taking place. I must die in order to make this right. So true worship must die with him, but true worship must also rise with him. Jesus didn't stay in the grave, thank God. Death didn't have its ultimate victory over Jesus. Jesus had his victory over death and rose from the grave. And so when Jesus rises from the dead, so then our true worship will resurrect with him, being pure, being undefiled, being holy, being the right kind of worship that Jesus wants us to have, that he wants his people to have in the temple, but they don't seem to be having. And Jesus will come and he will build a new temple ultimately. He will rise a new temple. He will redeem worship through the death and resurrection. Jesus is the Passover lamb who covers our sin. He is the payment that covers the cost for our sin. And Jesus is the ultimate payment for our worship as we enter into the house of God. He is the temple tax, if you will. He is the one who makes it possible for us. And He will show the nations He will show that all the nations that were to come into the temple for prayer and worship would be perfectly welcomed in Him as a true worshiper. And we'll see this be fleshed out even more as we get to chapter 4 when Jesus is talking to the Samaritan woman at the well. Jesus talks about how no longer will worship be found on this hill or in Jerusalem, but it will be wherever His true worshipers are. In all of the world, ultimately. And so true worship must die with Jesus in His death. It must rise with Him in His resurrection. But it must also come from a belief upon the Scriptures. It cannot be devoid of Scriptures. And that's what we saw with the Jews of the day. They wanted to worship God. They were in the temple trying to do so. They had, a, they had sacrifices. They had the temple tax. But the problem was they were not considering God's word. And because of that, even though they were trying to be worshipful to God, they were missing God completely because they were missing his word. And so the disciples seem later on to understand that Jesus's words were a fulfillment of the scripture, not something added to, not something different from scripture, but something that was Declare or something that was prophesied, something that was um, put forth in Scripture, preparing for Jesus to come. And so truly, Jesus is the Word made flesh. 
And so true worship then, church, for us means we have to die to self. We have to die with Christ, right? Our sin, for us to be truly worshipful of God, we cannot come in our sin. We cannot come excusing our sin. We must put our faith in Jesus and die to sin. Die to self. And then we must come to life with Him in His resurrection. Jesus doesn't just leave us dead in our sin. He brings us back to life. He redeems us. He puts breath back into our lungs that is worshipful and honoring of Him. We see now through a lens of life and not a lens of death. We go from death to life. But our worship then is also grounded in God's Word, not apart from God's Word. You want to have the zeal that Jesus has? Then join Him in His death. Join Him in His resurrection. And join Him in His Word. And that may seem oversimplified, but it's not. The, the zeal and worship for God is truly all eyes on Jesus. Nothing extra. No, nothing added. Like we are constantly trying to add to the worship game. Like if the preacher's not good enough, okay? If he's not good enough, if he doesn't, if he's not good looking enough, if he's not trendy enough, or if the worship team doesn't sound right, you know, if there's not enough, cool enough graphics or whatever's going on, then, you know, it hinders my worship experience. But that's not what it's about. Jesus alone should be enough to stir your soul, to stir your affections. Right? I hope you didn't come in here today going, man, I hope Greg just does it for me, right? Like, I hope he encourages me. I hope, like, I want to encourage you, but I hope you came here to see Christ, to want him, to desire him. The Jews, they wanted a sign. They wanted a sign to test his authority, but all the while they were missing Jesus right in front of them. They were missing that they had truly hindered worship and that they had offended God and doing it all in the name of worshiping God. They became so religious in their practices that they grew dull to what God had been doing and what God was inviting them and the nations to do in worshiping Him. And so we become we can become complacent. And we want to reinvigorate our passion and worship of Jesus. We want that mountaintop experience again, just, just like before. And so sometimes we try to manufacture that, try to conjure it up, you know? There's nothing wrong with that desire. But the problem is it becomes a Jesus plus something equals worship. When it really is Jesus plus nothing. And when we seek Jesus alone, then we are experiencing the true zeal of worship. And when we see Jesus alone, then we become zealous not only for God, but we then become zealous for His sons and daughters to come into His presence. In other words, when we came into this facility today, there shouldn't have just been a longing for Jesus, but a longing for our brothers and sisters sitting in this room to come before Jesus alongside us. And not just individuals in the room. 
So as we grow in zeal for the worship of Jesus, we have to keep a proper perspective, ultimately, of the world around us. Be zealous for Jesus, but do not lose sight of the reality the world around you without Christ will not fully understand unless their hearts are changed. So a zeal, a zeal that must change hearts, verse 23 through 25. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Initially, this sounds good, right? They he performed these signs. They believed in his name. And it seems like a good thing. But the problem is, what we're seeing here is that even though they're believing in his name here, it's not the sort of salvific belief or a belief that brings salvation that Jesus would have been looking for. He would not entrust himself to them. We see this in chapter 1 when John is telling us that those who become children of God are the ones who believe in his name. This is not the same sort of belief here. The people were seeking signs. They got the signs. He was healing people, performing miracles. But at the end of the day, what we see is that their hearts were not changed. Jesus would not even entrust himself to them because they were after, not after Jesus, but after what Jesus was providing. And so that is the problem. And so Jesus is the answer. He's the only one who can perfect our worship. He has to accomplish. He has to make it to the cross. He has to resurrect from the grave. Because otherwise, all we're doing is looking for signs, trying to grow excited about what Jesus can do or grow excited about God, treat Jesus like a dog and pony show and not exactly long for Jesus himself. We need Jesus to change our hearts. And in this situation, it's not just the Jews, but also the Gentiles. The people who were there performing worship in the temple didn't even have it right. Even their hearts were twisted. And that's the same picture you see in the story of the Exodus. God called Israel to participate in the Passover as well because their hearts were sinful. God didn't save them because they were righteous people and they had done right and they were good. No, God saved them because he loved them, but they still had sinful hearts and needed their hearts atoned for. And so this is the picture that we all are sinners and we all need the blood of Christ. We all need our hearts changed. And so at the heart of everything, Jesus alone makes our worship right. We don't make our worship right. Jesus was not ignorant. He knew that the crowd was gathering not because they had the same exact zeal for the house of his father, but they wanted more of his signs. They wanted more of his healings. And so he didn't entrust himself to them. And so I would say we need to be careful as believers to not tie ourselves so closely to those who do not have faith in Jesus. And I want to be careful here. I'm not saying avoid non-Christians. No, be a friend of sinners, okay? And I'm not saying to become naive that non-Christians have 
the same, or what I'm saying is don't become so naive to think that non-Christians have the same exact goals as you do as a believer. You get locked up into a group, you get locked up into a movement, into an organization, into a humanitarian effort, and all of a sudden, if it's led by people who are not changed by the gospel of Jesus, it's going to come to a point, it's going to come to a head where you have to decide, do I remain faithful to Jesus or do I continue to follow myself and tie into this effort which is not grounded in Christ? So while Jesus did not entrust himself to those who had broken hearts, those who were sinful. He never made them an enemy or became a sinful stumbling block for them. If Jesus became a stumbling block, it was only because they rejected him personally, not because Jesus somehow pestered them or irritated them to the point of rejection. Jesus had compassion He still healed. Even though he knew he was being used, he still healed. He still worked signs and he cared for people. Even though he knew they were missing the point. And Jesus' compassion for them ultimately was displayed on the cross for their sins. And so I think this is the point I'm trying to get at is as we interact with the world, our identity is not to be locked in with them. Our identity is to be with Christ but we are to interact with them with compassion, with gentleness, with care, with a tenacity for them to know Christ. Because without Christ, they will be in hell forever. And so, Jesus is interacting with the lost world, knowing that they're a bunch of fools and idiots. But He knows the work He has to do for them. And as Christians, we, have, we must grow a zeal for the Lord's worship and tie ourselves closely to those who are in Christ, continue to act with care and compassion towards those who are lost. We, not, we, we must not be the people who are pestering and angering, annoying people who have broken hearts, or even our own brothers and sisters. We must be the light of Christ to a lost world. We must be the light of Christ to our own family, showing that we are a living invitation for them to come and follow Jesus and not a stumbling block. And that's part of our job as ambassadors, to call others into right relationship and worship of Jesus. We're not to separate ourselves, but we're to be among the world, serve them, care for them, tell them about Jesus, all the while entrusting our lives to the Lord and nothing man-made. Back in 2007, when I went on a short academic tour in Israel, I was able to stay in a Bedouin tent, tent in southern Israel. It was, it was actually a really fun experience, a really cool experience. I mean, we're in the middle of the wilderness, nothing around for miles. But the Bedouin people... If you were to study them, they're uh, a people who are, are known for hospitality. Um, anytime, anybody who would come through, a foreigner, sojourner, whatever it is, they'll house them for a few days, feed them, take care of them, and then send them out. It, there's even stories of enemies coming through. And because it's so ingrained in their culture to be hospitable, they would even house their enemies 
for three days and then send them out and then go kill them. <laughs> but we got to stay in a, in a Bedouin uh, tent, which was really cool. And I loved it because when we came in, I mean, they gave us a place to sleep. They were extremely hospitable. Uh, there was times of music. There was times of storytelling. And then my favorite was dinner time. There was a large spread of food, a large spread of food. Hot pitas, hummus, lamb, potatoes, hot tea, all that you could eat. And I mean, I was pounding those things. I was like, I am not leaving full. And so it was probably the most memorable night of hospitality that I've ever had. The Father in heaven, He is making us, that is His sons and daughters, into His living temple, the place where He dwells, the place where the lights are always on, the food is always warm, the music is always playing His praises, the table is always set, the water is always clean, the environment is always inviting and full of holy love and warmth. And the blood of the Passover lamb is forever being sprinkled over our souls, giving us a never-ending peace and forgiveness that we have now forever with the Father in heaven. God our Father is the most hospitable Father and God of all. And He has brought us in and that's what gives us a great zeal for worship praise be to god that he sent his son jesus so that we could be with him in his house forever and it's a good home it's a warm home and so i pray that we would be a people who are zealous zealous for god's house for his household for the worship of Jesus, for the work that He has done in His death and resurrection, and zealous for a lost world who has yet to know the true worship of God.